Today we are continuing our interview with Jenny Waddell, the research coordinator at Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary from her office in Port Angeles, Washington. Jenny has been with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, known as NOAA, since 2001, and with the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary since 2016. Her background is in marine conservation science. She holds a master's degree from the University of Washington here in Seattle. So, Jenny, welcome back this time. Uh, last week we we talked about the marine sanctuary, and uh, today we're going to be talking about the research that you do and the wildlife that's found in the sanctuary. So uh, let's talk about first about your research. Uh, what are you regularly engaged in with uh, with the sanctuary? Yeah, thanks, Jay, for having me again. Um, it's great to talk with you. Yeah, Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary has a variety of research projects really focused at um, monitoring and studying the different habitats and living marine resources that are present in the sanctuary, which changes over the course of the year. Um, the sanctuary contains six major habitat types, ranging from sandy beaches and rocky intertidal areas to deep sea floor areas that may have um, deep sea corals and sponges living on them. And we spend a lot of time and use a lot of different tools to study and monitor these habitats. For example, um, we do regular intertidal surveys using the same protocols that are used from California, Oregon, Washington, up to Alaska so that we can compare data about how organisms in the tide pools are doing. So that would involve um, surveying sea stars and surf grass and mussels and barnacles that are living in the intertidal zones along the Olympic coast. Are those tide pools healthy? Generally, they are. We've had some problems over the past couple of decades. Um, there was a big sea star wasting disease that really decimated many of the sea stars along our coast. And while some of those species of sea stars have recovered, there are others that have not. So, um, yeah, we are seeing changes in tide pools, but in general, they're pretty lush out here. On your website, uh, it says water, uh, it talks about tide pool tips. What are those? Oh, it's really just ways that visitors can experience the tide pools safely without endangering themselves because it's a very rough coastline out here and there's rogue waves. So how to, how to experience tide pools safely, but also how they can be in the environment without hurting any of the creatures that they're there to see. Mm-hmm. So uh, you monitor algae blooms. Are, do the algae blooms occur in the tide pools or in other locations? Yeah, the harmful algal blooms are a really interesting topic. Um, generally, they are starting offshore and come on shore and affect um, uh, shellfish, mm -hmm. which filter out the harmful algae, and they're not affected. The shellfish themselves are not affected by the harmful algae. Mm -hmm. However, the animals that consume those shellfish, whether it's seabirds or sea otters or sea lions or humans, mm 
can become poisoned by toxic algae in the shellfish. In fact, right now, I just heard about a story in California where um, they are having many cetaceans and sea lions wash up dead on shore because of harmful algal blooms there. Mm. Wow. That's too bad. So, yeah, it's, it's a really um, unfortunate situation. But that's why we are very um, engaged in working with others, including all four of the coastal treaty tribes, um, through the Olympic Region Harmful Algal Bloom Partnership. Um, as part of that, we work with the Quileute tribe to collect water samples offshore to monitor for HABs that might come onshore to complement the work that the tribes are doing with the Department of Health and other partners to monitor um, toxins in shellfish that are on the shore already. It's really important. There, there are some seafood species particularly razor clams that are highly valued by the locals mm. as well as by visitors who come out to dig razor clams during openers. Mm -hmm. And we have a really important responsibility to work with partners to make sure that those shellfish don't contain toxins. So it's a really important partnership to protect public health from seafood contamination. Uh, in deeper water, uh, I, I think you mentioned that you have kelp beds. Uh, are they thick uh, in the sanctuary? Are they? You know, I'm a little bit holding my breath, but our kelp forests are lush and beautiful and very healthy. And a recent paper by some collaborators um, confirmed that they have remained pretty healthy over the past 30 years. The state conducts annual surveys using planes and images to really record and measure and track the condition of canopy forming kelp over time. So that's quite an important resource. Um, but for sure, we are very excited that our kelp seems to be pretty resilient to some of the declines that have been experienced in California. The work we do to monitor kelp forests is, is um, complementary to the work that the state's doing because in addition to the airplane photographs, we actually send divers out to go and measure different aspects of kelp forests. So the canopy as well as the understory kelp, including the fish and the invertebrates that we see and what the substrate is composed of. And we do that work with the Northwest Fishery Science Center, which is another part of NOAA. Mm. And we do that using protocols that are used across the West Coast. So, again, our data is comparable to other research that's happening up and down the West Coast. Uh -huh. We're actually headed out to do those surveys in two weeks. Oh, yeah. Huh? Let's talk about seabirds. Uh, do you keep tabs on seabirds that uh, uh, come into the sanctuary? So we don't do seabird monitoring currently, but this summer we're working with a woman who is helping us design a new seabird monitoring program. We have done volunteer surveys in the past, but due to a lack of capacity, we haven't been able to continue those. However, we work with a number of partners um, from elsewhere in NOAA, as well as the National Wildlife Refuge folks that I mentioned earlier. Um, I guess on last week's call, as well as the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to monitor seabirds. 
And through all of these efforts, we've been able to learn a lot about how important Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary is to seabirds. In fact, um, a woman from Scripps Institute of Oceanography just published a paper confirming how important Olympic Coast is to the abundance and diversity of seabirds that are found across the entire West Coast. Um, Her analysis showed that National Marine Sanctuaries on the West Coast, of which there are five, do a great job of protecting seabird abundance and diversity, and that Olympic Coast does a particularly good and important job of protecting seabirds. What species of seabirds come into the sanctuary? What are the most prominent birds? There are many. Um, I guess I'll start with some of the resident seabirds who are known to nest on the islands offshore on the Olympic Coast. That would include charismatic species like the tufted puffin and common murs. We have cormorants. There are um, just so many pigeon guillemots, I would say, are quite an abundant species. And then we have long-distance migrants, like several species of albatross and shearwaters. Some of these seabirds make a journey of more than a thousand miles to come here to feed on the high productivity areas in the sanctuary. And can it's really they, exciting. Can they be seen by people who come out there to do birding? Oh, absolutely. There are some wonderful spots along the coastline where you don't even need to be in a boat to be able to see many of these species. There are certainly seabird species that stay quite far offshore, so those wouldn't be visible for the most part. But yes, there are many, many great places for visitors who are birders. The website also mentions beached bird monitoring. Uh, What is that? Yeah, that's a really neat program that's run by partners. Julia Parrish at the University of Washington leads up the COAST program. It's COAST with two S's. And what they do is have a whole cohort of trained volunteers who regularly walk along sections of the beaches looking for birds that have died and washed up on shore. Mm-hmm. So they're beached birds, and they're the Volunteers are trained to identify the birds and take specific measurements. But through that COAST program, they've really published some super interesting information, which again sometimes ties back to environmental uh, concerns. For example, we were talking about harmful algal blooms. Well, a few years ago, there was a big harmful algal bloom that resulted in a huge die-off of a specific type of bird. Um, Tassin's auklets and rhinoceros auklets have been involved in the past in major die-offs. But through this partnership with COAST, they're able to document which birds are dying and use that information to predict how many birds were killed but didn't wash up on shore to get a better estimate of the total mortality from disturbance events. Okay, let's go back to uh, tide pools or shoreline. Uh, you're doing a green gab crab monitoring program. What's what's that project? Yeah, so European green crab are an invasive species that showed up on the West Coast about 20 years ago 
but they only showed up on the Olympic coast in the summer of 2017. For whatever reason, they had a really hard time first getting established on the Olympic coast, but now their numbers have proliferated and they're a real nuisance. They, um, Green crab are a small crab with five points on their head. They look a little like the native shore crab, so we really want people to know what they're looking at and be able to differentiate them. Um, the European green crabs are a problem because they get up into the tidal rivers and they burrow into the banks and can change the, the stream banks. They also eat a lot of the same things that native crabs eat. So mm-hmm. they can outcompete native crabs uh, um, like Dungeness crab, which are highly valued. Is there any way to control the green crabs? That is a matter of debate. Most <laughs> of the European green crab control efforts are led by the state of Washington in cooperation with Washington Sea Grant's European green crab team. However, the um, coastal treaty tribes, particularly the Macaw tribe, has been really a leader in trying to control their populations here on the Olympic coast. Um, I wish there was more we could do to prevent introductions and to control their populations, but there just aren't that many good choices other than trapping them, which is very labor and time intensive. Uh, you, uh, you highlighted wildlife disturbance. Uh, talk about talk about what you uh, mean by that. So wildlife disturbance can occur when human activities disturb or disrupt wildlife nearby. And laws like the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act protect certain species or species groups from wildlife disturbance. And there's specific language in those acts about what that that means. At Olympic Coast, we add to these wildlife protections by prohibiting planes and helicopters from flying under a 2,000-foot ceiling without first securing a permit. And we do this to avoid having those aircraft flush nesting seabirds or marine mammals off their haul-out sites. Um, there are some exceptions, but basically that's how the sanctuary adds to the other protections in place against wildlife disturbance. What kind of habitat changes are affecting wildlife in the sanctuary? Yeah, I think what comes to mind first is really ocean habitats. Um, And what we talked a little bit about last time in terms of changes to the temperature of the ocean at different levels, changes to the amount of dissolved oxygen that's in the water column, um, we are documenting quite a few changes to those pelagic or open ocean habitats that are very likely to affect marine productivity in the future. Uh, the website notes that 29 species of marine mammals are known to use the Olympic coast. Uh, what, what are the species of marine mammals that are found in the sanctuary and uh, how are their populations doing? Have they have they changed over time? Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, some species of marine mammals have really flourished and increased their numbers, and others aren't doing quite so well. Um, among the 29 species that have been documented here, some of the most common species 
um, would include uh, Washington sea otters. Uh, over 90% of the sea otters in Washington live within the boundaries of Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary. So there's quite a lot of focus on that population. We also have very robust populations of gray whales and humpback whales. Um, the southern resident killer whales also use the, the sanctuary quite a bit, along with uh, transient killer whales and other types of cetaceans. We have lots of stellar sea lions. And during the summer, the male California sea lions come up here to forage mm. once um, the females have pups in California. Uh-huh. So are any of those populations uh, endangered in any way, or are they in decline? Well, certainly the southern resident killer whales um, are in in peril for sure. There are only, I believe, 73 of them left. Um, so I would probably say that's our most endangered species within the sanctuary. Uh -huh. um, other populations have fluctuated. There was a very significant rebuilding of several whale species once the Marine Mammal Protection Act was implemented. Um, however, in the past couple of years, we've seen the die-off of um, certain gray whale populations due to an unusual mortality event. So not everything is great uh, out there in the ocean for, for marine mammals. You do a pinniped monitoring program. Uh, what uh, what are the principal uh, habitat areas for the pinnipeds? Yeah, so pinnipeds are monitored primarily by the Macaw Tribe and the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, there are several areas along the coast where pinnipeds are hauling out to rest and relax in the sun in between bouts of feeding. And there are some other areas where pinnipeds are actually pupping on the islands and reproducing, which is a really exciting development in some situations. Uh, do you have anything to do with uh, marine fishes? Yeah, so we do monitor fish within kelp forest ecosystems when we're out doing our dive surveys. And we also track and monitor the populations of fishes that we see on, in the deep sea habitats when we have remotely operated vehicles or underwater robots available to us. So we definitely keep track of the fish that we see, um, but most of the monitoring for fishery species is done by NOAA Fisheries. Uh -huh. is, there, is there anything that I've uh, left out that, uh, that you do in the work that you do uh, monitoring wildlife? Well, I think we've covered a lot of the work that we do. I, I could talk for hours about any of these subjects, but I'm okay. trying to keep it pretty high level. Are you seeing any kinds of changes uh, that are uh, the result of climate warming? Yes. In fact, we have been able to document several changes that we believe are a result of climate change, particularly with respect to the condition of ocean habitats. I mentioned previously the marine heat waves that have started to proliferate off our coastline since 2013, um, and those are certainly having an effect on the hospitable <laughs> or on the condition of the habitat. Um, we're also, I, I also mentioned 
ocean deoxygenation, where we're seeing declines in the amount of dissolved oxygen available in the water column. And that is also related to climate change. Um, and with the variables that we are able to measure, we're also able to calculate variables related to ocean acidification, which is a, a quickly, rapidly growing concern for many ocean, mm. um, ocean conservationists across the planet. What is acidification uh, uh, effect? Does it affect so, the whales? Ocean acidification primarily affects the species that live in the water column and use the calcium carbonate that's dissolved in the ocean water to create their skeletons. So there are a number of invertebrate species as well as plankton species that are going to have a much harder and harder time creating their shells and, and completing their life cycles as ocean acidification worsens in the future. Speaking of, uh, of the oxygen depletion in, uh, in places in the water, is there, do you know of any technology that uh, is being developed to reoxygenate uh, ocean, ocean waters near the shore? You know, there are some ideas on how to increase circulation in the ocean, which would help to extend the surface water, which tends to be fairly oxygenated, and bring that oxygenated water down to deeper areas. Mm -hmm. Usually with hypoxia, which is basically low oxygen, um, we find that it's the areas near the seafloor that become hypoxic, and that hypoxic water can shoal up towards the surface. Because the surface waters and the waters very near shore are adjacent to the air and they're mixed up with waves, those areas tend to be quite well oxygenated. But when the ocean becomes stratified, the areas of low oxygen get trapped near the bottom and really affect the animals that live there, ranging from crabs that are suffocating because there's not enough oxygen to wolf eels and other species that you don't usually see washed up on the beach. Yeah. But during intense hypoxic events, we are quite alarmed to see the diversity of animals that wash up dead on the beach. So it, it's really quite alarming, and it tends to get worse over the summer season to where the worst conditions tend to be in August and September. And there's also some spatial differences where we see the signal happening more intensely and for a longer period in the southern part of the sanctuary than in the north. So there's a lot of really interesting um, dynamics happening in the ocean here. So, Jenny, if, uh, if people come out to the Olympic Peninsula to, uh, to visit the sanctuary, are there, are there numerous access points, or uh, how do they, how do they uh, uh, appreciate the, the sanctuary? Jay, we have a whole bunch of information on our website on, for visitors to help them figure out where they're going to go and plan their visit. There are few sites that are very accessible, and those tend to be um, quite popular 
because it either involves no hike or, um, you know, just direct access to the sanctuary. Many sites, however, involve a little bit of hiking and a little bit of work to actually uh-huh. enjoy it. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's an amazing coastline. It's quite spectacular, very scenic, but it's also rugged and a little bit dangerous. So we want folks to be well-prepared when they're here. We want folks to check the tides because sometimes your ability to access places is dependent on the tides. Um, and we just really want folks to be able to enjoy this spectacular place in a safe way. So if they come out there, they, they could go into Port Angeles and the, uh, there's an office, the Discovery Center. Is that where they... Yeah, so that would be a great place to start a visit to get uh-huh. oriented to the coast before uh-huh. you head out there. Um, there are a number of places that are exceptional uh places to visit, I would recommend folks visit the Macaw Museum in Nia Bay, which is an amazing, um, Mm. amazing museum that really talks a lot about how this place has been cared for, for thousands and thousands of years. There are also locations within the National Parks Coastal Strip, um, where there's parking and bathrooms and sometimes interpretive rangers to help um, lead tide pool walks and things like that. There's a beautiful lodge and cabins at Claylock Beach, which again is part of the national park. Mm-hmm. But some sections of the Olympic coast are on tribal reservations and are not accessible to the public. Okay. Well, Jenny, we have run out of time, but I really appreciate the opportunity to do these interviews with you. Uh, it's been great. Uh, I haven't known about the National Marine Sanctuary in Port Angeles before, so uh, glad to be able to do this uh, interview. So thank you again very much. Thank you, Jay. Our guest today has been Jenny Waddell, Research Specialist at the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary in Port Angeles, Washington. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallant Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour news, go online to jswilderness.com, see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.